Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vott, the host, and joining us, as he does almost every single week for the podcast, is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always a pleasure. Brandon, great to hear you and to see you. We were just together um, a few days ago in the frigid, oh, yeah. <laughs> frigid snow-covered land of Minnesota. We were up there for uh, an honorary doctorate and a keynote that you were receiving and, and giving at the University of St. Thomas. Tell us a little bit about that. And you were there for the Chesterton uh, board meeting, huh? Just by chance, we were in the same hotel. You were there for the meeting, and I was staying there for this event, so we were able to spend some time together. One of my memories, Brandon, of that trip is, you know, because I'm from Chicago, so I know about Midwestern winters. You're not, you're from Florida. So my image of you in, in kind of a skimpy coat, you know, because you were not properly accoutred it was for my It was my one jacket that I owned. It's like the one jacket <laughs> you own, and you looked pretty... Pretty uncomfortable, I must say, walking across that campus. For me, honestly, it was um, even though I'm, I'm I'm sick to death of Chicago winters, but to sense that again was a, a bit uh, nostalgic. It was like a homecoming, you know, to be in that really cold weather. Um, it was a joy. It was a great event. Uh, we had mass with Archbishop Hebda, I think one of the great churchmen in the country today, and uh, I preached that mass. Who, and then who we by had, the way, during right before mass began, he said, "I'm so glad that Bishop Barron is here to preach because oh. that means I won't have to listen to his homily tonight to prepare my homily." Yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> funny. He's a good man, and uh, so I preached to that. And then we had a, a you know cocktail hour with a lot of the, the donors to the Catholic Studies program there, and then a dinner, and then I gave a, a, a keynote address. They were nice enough to give me an honorary doctorate too, which I was indeed honored by. Um, so it was a joy. And uh, what did I talk about? <laughs> I talked about, uh, um, oh, the, some of the research on on the nuns, you know, the N-O-N-E-S and why young people are coming away from the church and then what Catholic studies can do to um, address that. So that was my topic. So many of you have, have heard probably some of those themes before, but it was a joy to uh, talk about it up there. I know you've praised the Basilica, Cathedral, Basilica, I think that's there. Yeah, the, no, the Cathedral, cathedral. of, of St. Paul. Yeah. And we did stop in there very briefly before the ceremony. Uh, for my money, the most beautiful ecclesial building in the United States, uh, built by the great uh, Archbishop Ireland, you know, back in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and it's a splendid uh, architectural gem because you look at it from the outside and you say, oh, you know, it's it's really compact. It's, it's really, it's small. It's charming. Then you go inside and it's this cavernous building. It's extraordinary feat of architecture. And it's up there on this, this very high point of the city of St. Paul. In fact, even looking down on the, uh, the state capital, and that was uh, Ireland's intention to show that, you know, the primacy of, of the faith. So anyway, it's, uh, I enjoy Minneapolis a lot. I like, I like that area. And before we dive into the subject of conversation here, maybe say a, just a quick word about the Catholic Studies program at the university, which I know you really esteem. Yeah, founded by uh, the late, great Don Briel, died just about a year ago. Uh, Don was a real uh, reformer in, uh, in Catholic education because he was a professor there at St. Thomas, but had the idea kind of around the time of um, Ex Cordia Ecclesia, you know, John Paul II's great statement on Catholic universities that they needed to revive a sense of, of the faith as animating all forms of intellectual life. Uh, Don Briel was very influenced by John Henry Newman. And you can see the idea of a university very much behind uh, the Catholic Studies proposal. So it started there and then it spread like seed all over the country, indeed around the world. So um, I think you know one of the great achievements, and I said that, 
publicly, uh, one of the great achievements in post-conciliar Catholicism is that Catholic studies uh, movement. So I was happy to you know, pay tribute to it. Well, Bishop, recently the big popular evangelical publication, Christianity Today, ran mm -hmm. a big story, and this was the title, Christian, What Do You Believe? Probably a Heresy About Jesus, Says Survey. And <laughs> yeah. what they're referencing and what they explore in the rest of the article is a recent survey conducted by Lifeway Research, a big uh, religious research group, sort of equivalent to the Pew Research Center or CARA for us Catholics. They talked yeah. to 3,000 American adults from all different religious persuasions, and they asked them just a short list of questions about Jesus and God and religion. Um, it looks like they do this every couple of years, and so they're able to sort of trace what the religious pulse of the of the country is. Um, I want to talk about some of those results with you. Now, a, a couple quick caveats. One, it was commissioned by Ligonier Ministries, which is a, a pretty popular reformed evangelical ministry. Um, second, some of the questions they asked are sort of loaded from an evangelical perspective. So I think this survey might be of, of a special interest to evangelicals, but we Catholics, I think, can still uh, get some good things out of it. Um, okay, so the big summary, according to, to the Christianity Today article, was that overall, U.S. adults appear to have a superficial attachment to well-known Christian beliefs. After all, a majority agreed that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead. However, Christianity Today concludes, they rejected the Bible's teaching on, one, the gravity of man's sin, two, the importance of the church's gathering together for worship, and three, the Holy Spirit. Now, hmm. let's walk through some of these points uh, yeah. one at a time. So first of all, survey found more than two-thirds of Americans, 69%, disagree that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. What do you make of that? Well, of course, that's a different way to, to put it. I mean, because I, I, I would agree with that. If, if by smallest sin, you mean a, a venial sin, uh, sure, it doesn't deserve eternal damnation. But I wouldn't say that's equivalent to being like soft on sin. I, I think what you, what you first said, though, is probably right, that I think a lot of people today would buy the cultural consensus that, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, deep down we're all nice people, uh, all of us are, are basically good. I think that is largely held today, and that's a very secular opinion. And that indeed is not a biblical point of view, because if that's true, we don't need a savior. And that's what's happened, of course, is because we believe that cultural consensus, Jesus turns into not a savior, but a teacher of vague spiritual principles and a self-help guru and, you know, et cetera. So I, I think that's true. I, I would agree with that. We tend not to get sin right, and therefore we get Jesus wrong uh, doctrinally. Um, but in terms of like the smallest sin deserving eternal damnation, I mean, certainly as a Catholic, I, I, I would deny that. Well, it's like questions like this to me highlight the need for much more subtlety. And I think the yeah. Catholic theology provides it. We've got this distinction yeah. between venial sin and mortal sin, which kills the life of grace in your yeah. soul. Yeah, right. Yeah, quite right. And that's, you know, so to say uh, we need a keener and deeper sense of sin in our culture, I think that's true. Everyone should agree with that. But then within that... Um, perception. There are, are important distinctions to be made. Okay, here's an interesting one. Uh, the survey found that a majority of U.S. adults, 58%, said that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. And only 30% of people disagreed. So 70% of people did not disagree with that statement. What do you make of that? Interesting. That one I think is intriguing because uh, that would also be in line with the cultural consensus in the direction of individualism. 
And that, um, you know, that famous definition of religion by Alfred North Whitehead, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, but it's a remarkably bad definition where religion is what one does with one's privacy is what Whitehead says. As a Catholic, I think that's just repugnant. You know, it's so interiorizing and so privatizing, like my deepest, deep, deep down conviction. That's my religion. Whereas as a Catholic, I mean, I would say as a Christian, as a biblical person, I would say, no, it's religion has an awful lot to do with the mystical body of, of Christ. It has to do with the church. It's not what I do with my my individual privacy. It's It happens publicly, religion, and it happens in a community. And that's why I see worship is much more than what I privately do in relation to the Lord. It's It's something we do together. I think, Brandon, like, you know, this morning, I spent my typical hour in my chapel in um, in my holy hour. And in a way, sure, that's a very private, singular sort of moment. It's the Lord and I. But what was I doing during that time? Um, I was praying the office of the church. Well, the office links me to the church, and it's a prayer on behalf of the church. I was praying the rosary. What was I doing? I was, I was asking uh, the intercession of the Blessed Mother for all kinds of people who would ask me to pray for them. When I pray the rosary, that's what I typically do is I'll say, all right, Lord, I can't remember everyone that asked me to pray for them, but you you remember, you know. So now I'm bringing through Mary's intercession all of these people to you. My point is, even though I'm alone in that room, one-on-one with Jesus in a way, but I'm also, I'm not alone in that room. I'm, I'm linked to a very wide community uh, with whom and for whom I'm praying. And so I, I guess I, I'm... I regret the fact that a lot of Americans feel it's just a very private matter. It strikes me that you see it in both Protestant and Catholic circles that if worship is reduced to merely a good talk, some good music, and you know, I feel sort of better about myself, that all of that can be replicated pretty easily at, at home. I can go on my computer, yeah. watch a TED talk. I can turn on Spotify and listen to music I like, you know? Yeah. Um, but for Catholics, there's something that's a part of worship that we just can't get in our families or at home. Yeah. And of course, now speaking as a Catholic, uh, now we bring it to the mass. What's the mass, but the great act by which Christ worships the father. So as son, he doesn't worship the father because he's co-equal to the father, but in the measure that the son is united to a human nature on our behalf in his humanity, he worships the father. Now we join as brothers and sisters of Christ, we join him in that great act of, of praise. You can't get that from Spotify and you can't get that from a TED talk. Uh, that happens at, at this great act that we call the mass. Um, and that happens in a communal way, even if as a priest, I'm saying mass, you know, by myself. Uh, yes, in a way, it's just maybe me alone in the chapel, but it's never, never by myself. It's the mass is always with the angels and saints, on behalf of the whole church. So in a way, I mean, the, the whole church is mystically present at every Mass. And that can't be had on, on Spotify or through a TED Talk. Um, that's why the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. Um, do you remember, Brandon, this is now about a year ago when I, when I had the day with William Lane Craig, the great evangelical uh, philosopher and evangelist, and we talked about, you know, what's what would you do with someone you're trying to bring to the Lord? And he talked about, you know, bringing them to the point of confessing that Jesus is their Lord, et cetera. And I said, being a little provocative, I said, well, I would try to get them to Mass. 
you know, and what I meant was that that's what it means fully to bring someone to Christ. Uh, maybe as a, as a preparation, you do a lot of other things, but the, the goal is to bring them to mass where they have this experience of the right worship of the father, which can't be had any other way. All right, let's move down the survey. I think this one is probably going to ruffle your feathers a little bit. Uh, it says a majority of U.S. adults, 59%, say that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, again, that's the, the Star Wars uh, gives popular expression to it. But that goes back to, in our culture, people like Emerson or read Walt Whitman in the 19th century. And then Emerson is influenced by people like Friedrich Schleiermacher, the founder of modern liberal Protestantism. And that idea of, you know, the infinite or the all or Emerson's oversoul, this kind of mystical language that today we probably identify with the new age, right? Uh, that's And then in turn, that goes back all the way to the Gnostics. Um, so that's a very old proposal. Um, when God is a force, he becomes something that even though, oh, boy, the force and oh, it's bigger than I... Uh, but I can finally manipulate it. I, I can finally play with it or avoid it or look in Star Wars. I mean, the, the force can be used for good or for, for ill. Um, none of that is in line with the biblical view that God is a person who addresses me and you personally, who wants to be the Lord of our life. You know, a force can be set aside can be ignored, can be manipulated, but a person can't, you know? Um, so it's extremely important that we recover, even as we as we insist upon the um, essential mysteriousness of God. God's not a person in the, in the ordinary sense, like, you know, you're a person, I can see you and I can talk to you and, you know, uh, ordinary ho-hum sort of uh, uh, relationship. It's not like that, but God's never less than a person. He's... He's hyper personal, but see, that's, that's, it's much more demanding and much more exciting at the same time, isn't it? Because I, the God is a force or the Holy Spirit's a force. Finally, it's a dull religion. I think. Yeah. Oh, uh huh. There's a great force that runs through all things. Yeah. Okay. Now let me get on with my life. As opposed to, no, there's a, there's a person, the hound of heaven, who's after you and wants you in relationship and wants to change you from within, who wants to turn you into an image of his son. That's a much more dangerous, but finally exciting business. I think in common parlance, the word human and the word person are sort of used synonymously. Yeah. Um, but obviously, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a human. So what, yeah. what do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, the classic definition is an instance of a rational nature is a person. Uh, that's Boethius' famous definition. Uh, what I would say is a person is, is someone endowed with mind, will, and freedom. Uh, you know, that, so many of the 20th century theologians put that stress on, on freedom. Uh, the play of two freedoms. So when I'm in relation to God, it's not my freedom versus this vague force. It's my freedom, which is finite, in relation to an infinite freedom. Um, a person of mind, will, liberty, who is now addressing me, who has mind, will, and liberty, and is trying to draw me into relationship. See, that's much more exciting. 
um, think of the angel addressing Mary uh, at the Annunciation. Uh, that's not coercion. That's a it's a gracious invitation, right? Appealing to Mary's mind, will, and freedom, and then she acquiesces. She agrees. She enters into this dynamic relationship. But that's true across the board now. Watch the Lord Jesus as he engages people. It's always an awakening of freedom. It's an engagement of a person. Come, come, follow me. But he's not saying, you know, I will make you follow me. Uh, I'm forcing you to follow me. It's a come, come, you know, if you can, follow me. Um, That's more exciting, even as it's more challenging. Well, speaking of Jesus, the surveyors asked 3,000 American adults this question and then asked whether people agreed with it or not. They said this statement, Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. (laughs) 78% of people agreed with that. And I think that's probably where Christianity today got their headline. Christian, what do you believe? Probably a heresy about Jesus. Arius rides again. Tell us about Uh, this. It's the ancient Arian heresy, right? Arius, who was a presbyter of the Church of Alexandria in the fourth century, by all accounts, a a very charismatic, very intelligent uh, priest, great preacher, actually a songwriter and a singer. Um, And Arius proposes as a way past all this confusion about who Jesus is. The, you know, at the time, reasonable view that the Logos is the first of God's creatures so a creature like you and me, but at a very, very high pitch. And that Logos now is joined to human flesh and becomes this, this person that we call Jesus. Um, so he's a bit like Hercules or Achilles, you know, kind of a semi-god, uh, demigod. Um, and Arius proposes that as a you know more reasonable approach to Christology. And man, did he get a lot of uh, supporters for a long time. Well, long after his death, he has a lot of supporters, even among... Uh, many bishops throughout the Christian world, beginning in the East, but spreading eventually to the West. Think of, of Ambrose dealing with this problem in uh, in Milan, uh, Arians going all the way up into into present day France and Germany, and so that proposal was uh, was very powerful, a lot of traction. And if the survey is right, <laughs> without being able to name it, a lot of people are are Arians today. Now, we got to read Council of Nicaea three twenty five, but then go forward from there. Council of Constantinople, 381. Council of Chalcedon, uh, 451. Um, and what do we find? Not the Arian proposal, but rather this, this strange, deeply interesting proposal that Jesus is not semi-divine, semi-human, not simply human or simply divine, but fully human and fully divine. The creed that we recite every Sunday as Catholics, right? That he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. See, that's all holding off areas. It's saying he's begotten, not made. See, he's not a creature. Creatures are made. But the Logos is begotten and, we add, consubstantial with the Father, one in being with the Father, of the same essence as the Father, right? All of that is rehearsing the battle with Arius in the fourth century. Uh, this survey tells me, now it's among evangelicals largely, but we still need to fight that battle. We're still fighting the Aryan problem. Go back to the Nicene Creed. Say it with faith and you'll hold off this problem. All right, let's look at one more major finding from the survey. They asked people whether they agreed with this statement. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. Hmm. It is not about objective truth. And 
60% of Americans agreed with that. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, we're in trouble. But th that's very reflective of our culture, isn't it? I bet among younger people that number goes even higher. I'd be willing to bet. Um, see, objective truth is, is under assault everywhere in our culture, not just in religion. Uh, if I can say, no, I, I don't like being this gender. I'm another gender. Uh, I'll pretend I'm, a, I'm another age. Uh, you know, I, you, you have to agree with any of my subjective whims. Well, then objective truth has gone out the window. So a fortiori, when it comes to these ultimate claims about God, about salvation, about sin, um, yeah, it's just my opinion. You know, it's, it's the big Lebowski, right? It's just your opinion, man. Uh, that's the contemporary culture. But um, Christianity from the beginning has been massively interested in objective truth because we claim Jesus is the incarnation of the Logos, which means the divine mind. It means the truth of God. Um, you can't subjectivize that without compromising the integrity of the incarnation. And then look at our tradition, Brandon. This is not just true of Catholicism. This is true of all the great Christian traditions have massively been interested in the objectivity of their truth claims. Um, but see, the culture is very subjectivizing, very emotionalizing, and very individualizing. And all those tendencies are problematic for the faith. You know, my problem with this claim that religious belief is just a matter of opinion is that it's so generalized, like religious belief to solve it. You just need to get down to the particularities like, OK, how about this religious belief? God mm -hmm. exists. Yeah. Either he does or he doesn't. And we need to that. That's an objective fact. Either he does exist or he doesn't. Jesus rose from the dead. Either that's a historical fact or it's not. These aren't personal opinions that we're exchanging. It's, you know, again, to be fair, these are deep issues culturally. Um, there's been such a terrible history around violence and religion that people tend to associate objective truth claims with violence. So, uh, yeah, that's objectively true. Oh, and if I don't hold it, what are you going to do to me? Are you going to kill me? Are you going to imprison me? So that instinct is so great in us. And that goes back to the dawn of modernity, um, that it leads people to what you're right in characterizing as epistemologically a silly position. But it's sort of psychologically and culturally credible that people associate objective truth in religion, especially because it's ultimate stuff with violence. So if you don't hold that as objectively true, then, then I'm going to imprison you or censor you or kill you at the limit. And that so frightens people that they'll say, oh, oh why don't we just say it's all a matter of opinion? You know? And then no one's in a position to do violence to anybody else. So that's the trouble. Um, can we affirm objective truth in a nonviolent way? Yes, and I call that argument. That's the whole point. Arguing about religion means honoring both objectivity and honoring nonviolence at the same time. Uh, I want to say a plague on both your houses. Either you subjectivize the truth or you, you are violent. Plague on both your houses. Let's argue. That's better space to be in. Well, it's time for a question from one of our listeners. Today, we have a question from a young student named Mary at Buffalo Academy of Sacred Heart. They are big, big Word on Fire and Bishop Barron fans, led by their teacher, Megan DeAndrea, who, is, uh, who runs a, a large class of a bunch of uh, young students. They've sent us videos. They, they oh, love yeah, your work. Oh, yeah, we heard from them. Yeah, that's right. how I remember them. Sure, sure, Right, sure. right, right. So I invited them to submit a question. So Good. Mary is sort of their representative, and she's got a okay. question uh, for you about what it's like when you're celebrating the sacrament. So here's Mary's question. 
What is your experience as a priest in celebrating the sacraments? When Christ acts through you to consecrate the bread and wine or to absolve sin, what does that moment feel like for you? Huh, that's a, I, I hear your classmates behind you there, huh? Um, that's a cool question. Interesting. And, and I'd make a couple distinctions. It, it, in a way, it doesn't feel like anything. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there's something very objective about my operating in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, meaning it's not tied to my subjectivity. So if I don't feel something extraordinary happening in me, it doesn't say one little thing against what's happening. So as a priest, I, I say the words of consecration, and I'm utterly, utterly convinced, because the church teaches this, that that change is effective. Whether I feel anything or not, I can tell you this. I mean, like physically, you don't feel anything. There's nothing like, oh, I feel power coming out of me. Nor do you typically feel anything psychologically. Now, now to be to be clear about this thing and kind of balanced about it, there are times when, and I love those moments when you feel the 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 power and importance of what you're doing. Sometimes, you know, you're, it's 6.30 daily mass and, and you're, you're there, you're saying mass, but maybe you're not really into it for whatever reason. You're tired or you're psychologically disconnected or whatever. But there are other times when you are really in that moment and you are indeed feeling the, the intimacy with the Lord and with his people and, and the importance of what you're doing. And, and that's it's wonderful. Those are wonderful moments. I think, I'm glad you mentioned... Um, uh, confession, because there are times when that sacrament is especially powerful. When you're the minister of God's grace and forgiveness, maybe to someone that's been away from the church for decades, and there's that moment of of welcome and return and and the flow of grace, that's really powerful. And I, I've indeed felt that and been very moved by it. So that, that's the distinction I would make. Uh, the main thing is it's not a question finally of feeling, but of what the church is teaching. And even if I don't feel one little thing, the Eucharist is still present and the person's sins are still forgiven. But it's wonderful when you can uh, feel the spiritual power of it. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. I want to thank Bishop Aaron for joining us. Listen, in the last episode, we talked about Bishop's interview with Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro. If you haven't seen those videos yet, go out and find them. And more importantly, please, please share them. We want to share these videos with as many people as possible. So share them through social media, either email them to your friends and to your circles. We want to get those out as widely as possible. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Word on Fire show, and we'll see you next week right here on the Word on Fire show.